0: Hey it's Joey Pants and Danny Pants. Welcome to No Kidding.
1: Me too.
0: Today we're talking to Abby and Maggie aka the Anxiety Sisters.
1: They host a podcast about anxiety and they offer coping mechanisms and help so that no one has to suffer alone from debilitating effects of anxiety.
0: Yeah and how it may have impacted you. During these last 12 months and the ones that are coming up.
1: The Anxiety Sisters are promoting their podcast available at com, And they also have a e-learning course about uh, how to learn how to cope with anxiety, which I think is something I want to take.
0: Well, I I got a connection there, Danny. Maybe. Oh, uh, yeah,
1: you can hook me up with them. I can
0: hook you up. (laughs)
1: So oh, perfect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm very excited to talk to these women. We were actually on their podcast. They were nice enough to host us. So we wanted to host them and learn more about their journey with anxiety, um, you know, growing up with it, why they decided to do a podcast. And they just like have learned so much and like done all this research. So I'm very excited to talk to them.
0: Okay, so Again. let's fire it up. Let's get on Zoom and talk to the Grand Dams of Anxiety, the Anxiety <laughs> Sisters.
1: Let's do it. Hi,
0: guys. Hi, Hi, ladies. How are you, Abby? How are you, Maggie?
2: We're great. Thanks for having us on the show. Oh, I of course. Do. So, that was our new moniker, the Grand
3: Dams of Anxiety. I yeah. Say. Maggie, right that down, we have to trademark that right away.
0: Yes, (laughs) (laughs) You know, I've been thinking about this anxiety, and I don't know if I have it. I don't know what it feels like uh, uh, if I have it. You know, um, being clinically depressed, I think I really would like to have it. Uh, It might give me some energy. How did you identify with it? We didn't know about this stuff when I was a kid. Uh, It didn't have a name. It was just stupid, lazy, or crazy. I think we talked about that before. So, you know, can you describe it? I
2: don't think Mags and I knew it was anxiety until we were in our 20s. Right, Mags? Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, Maggie can talk about her own childhood. But for me, I have, I, I've been diagnosed with OCD as an adult, obsessive compulsive disorder, But I absolutely see, when I look back, a lot of compulsions that I had as a kid. I didn't know what they were. I just thought I was weird. And I also um, had a very anxious stomach, you know, way more than the average kid. I was always in the bathroom growing up and uh, Mm. I I didn't know what it was. I thought I had a bad stomach. So it wasn't until I was in my 20s or or maybe, you know, college when I met Maggie and we started talking a lot about our shared experiences and we both realized, oh, this This seems like more than just, you know, nerves or being, how did you put it, lazy or crazy? It it seemed that it had, there was more to it. And so we started to pursue help for it, especially in college.
0: That rings a bell with me. I used to go to the hospital all the time for what they called nervous spasms that, uh, you know, I would be bent over in pain and my mom would send me to the hospital, which was really way cooler than being at home with her. So for years, when I didn't want to go to school or if I had to, a, you know, a test or something that I was worried about or anxious. I guess it was anxious. And I, you know, I would say, Oh, my tummy, my tummy. And I'd get a really cool uh, single room at St. Mary's hospital uh, which was the best. Cause I was like, the nurses loved me. I remember I was like five years old and I would make the rounds with them. It was the most fun in the whole world. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, I, I definitely think that for kids, Often it comes out in stomach aches or stomach mm. spasms, um, or sometimes anger—a lot of anger. Or kids get diagnosed with other other kind of other kind of issues like ADHD, or and they might have all those, but mm-hmm. a lot of it may may sort of stem from an anxiety issue. I know as a kid, I had a lot of trouble separating from my parents for long periods of time. I was the kid in camp who was having a good time in summer camp, but crying every day. So that was, I had a lot of separation anxiety. And then after my father died in my twenties, I really went through a period of time where I couldn't eat anything. And it wasn't because I, it wasn't anorexia or wanting to lose weight or an eating disorder. It was my stomach was not functioning well. And people were telling me it's anxiety, it's anxiety. I was in therapy already. And I said, no, this can't be anxiety. There's something absolutely wrong with me because every time I attempt to eat, nothing will stay down. Mm -hmm. I was going to doctors, to doctors, to doctors, trying to find, you know, did I have stomach cancer? Did I have some other terrible disease
0: did you connect it to the loss of your dad the the unresolved
3: i didn't not for a while it was about six months later and i did not connect it for quite a while till i realized it was anxiety till i started a lot of treatment then i could connect it all back because now we know that we know now that grief is part of you know anxiety is part of the grief process too often
0: yeah and sometimes they quantify your grief and they say, you know, like uh, adults will say to children, okay, that's enough. It's time to be strong. You know, don't cry. You shouldn't cry. Daddy wouldn't want you to cry. Oh, yeah. But also the phobias, were they helpful? Were they the byproduct of unresolved emotional stress from the loss, the early loss of your dad?
3: I think that they were, I mean, he was, I was in my 20s, not, not a child, but I, I, think that the phobias, it was the anxiety started to take over in a way that I could not ignore about six months after my father died. And the phobias started to develop around the same time, obviously, it was part of the anxiety. And um, I was actually in so much therapy at the time, <laughs> I was because I was with a phobia specialist in, in mm-hmm. addition to my regular therapy,
2: and just sort of doing a lot to to manage it all. And and it is very common. If you don't treat anxiety that's kind of taking over your life, it's common Mm. for it to metastasize or to relocate and become a different type of anxiety. So as a result, I mean, I have had OCD my whole life, but I also suffered from panic disorder at one point when I was trying to ignore all of my anxiety symptoms. It just came up in another way.
0: For our listeners, what is panic disorder? How does it manifest itself?
2: Well, anyone in your audience who's ever had a panic attack doesn't need to be told what it is. (laughs) It's (laughs) absolutely terrifying. Basically, it's when um, you you can have different types of symptoms. My panic attack symptoms were cardiac. So I would go to the emergency room thinking I was having a heart attack, rapid heartbeat, sweating, numbness, all the, the Bayer aspirin commercial stuff I was feeling and I couldn't breathe and I was absolutely positive I would die. And then I went to the emergency room and they ran all the tests. I made them run the cardiac enzyme test twice because I didn't believe them when they said I didn't have a heart attack. Mm -hmm. You know, I was that sure it had to be physical. And uh, you know, after three or four of those, maybe five, I I can't remember how many times I went to the hospital, but after a while uh, I started to see a psychiatrist who put me on medication and then the panic attacks went away. Um, So that's how I knew, but I didn't believe it until that point.
0: Were they tranquilizers, the medication?
2: Yes. I started on uh, benzodiazepines. I was taking uh, Ativan, a small dose of it in the mornings, which is when my panic was most active. And then and I took that until my SSRI, which was Prozac, could kick in. This takes about six to eight weeks for an SSRI to really work.
0: You guys, I don't know if you read my, my book, the, my first book, uh, Who's Sorry Now? But I talk about a, a lot of this. Uh, you know, and my mom... All of my aunts, every, every one of them was on tranquilizers and my mom called them tranquilizers. Where the fuck are my tranquilizers? And, and so I think she was, you know, addicted to this shit and didn't know it, you know, cause they were just writing prescriptions like, like crazy. Nobody, you know, was supposed to make them feel good. So she'd take a couple of tranquilizers and then go to bingo. I remember having those attacks as a little kid where I couldn't breathe. And I, I couldn't talk. It was like a, you know, hiccuping almost and crying. Yeah. And, and just remembering my mom and her frustration. Stop it. Screaming at me. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Which of Which course made it. Didn't, yeah, it didn't
1: help. Didn't, yeah. it, no, no,
3: no, it doesn't. It doesn't help at all. Or when someone tells you to just
2: relax, it's. Yeah. yeah pretty unhelpful and, and for kids that. that's a very common presentation of panic joey it, uh, you know, the hiccuping and the crying and the feeling like yeah, it, you know, like you can't yeah. even
0: breathe that's like you're losing yeah. you know having a hard time breathing
2: yeah, yeah. adults and kids get that definitely that oh, I, mm-hmm. you go into fight or flight your body thinks that you are about to be attacked so that's what your nervous system does it starts the rapid shallow breathing so you can hurry up and escape from a predator I mean, it right. does it does come from an evolutionary uh, a plan to keep us alive. Unfortunately, nowadays, we're, we're, you know, we're not saber-toothed tigers aren't around the corner everywhere we look. So we're not living in the same amount of, you know, imminent danger. But those of us with anxiety, our brains still think that we do. And so standing mm. in line in the grocery store can trigger an anxiety attack, just as if we were being chased by, you know, a woolly mammoth.
0: Well, you know, growing so up in Hoboken in the 50s and 60s, I, I remember always being hypervigilant because it was a very dangerous neighborhood. Yes. It was very dangerous to go out, especially alone. Yes. Uh, and I was attacked many times and, and, and even, you know, living in Manhattan in the 70s, mm-hmm. if you guys remember, we all had those police fences on the windows and the police bar that would, you know, the the nine locks on the doors because people would, you know, break into your house. Uh, this is something that Daniela doesn't doesn't comprehend because Hoboken is such a kind of uh, white collar community now.
1: Oh, yeah. I remember you called me. I was walking down. I think it was like first in um, park and I was at night and he's like, oh, where are you? And I was like, I'm first in park. He's like, What are you doing? That's that's the most dangerous street. You can't walk there at night. You can't walk there. I'm like, I'm walking past the yoga studio and the vintage shop and the fancy pizza place where slices cost fifty dollars. Like, I think I'm okay, but it's just like I know because when I I was first moving to
3: Hoboken, um, my mom hadn't been there, Joey, since the 70s, probably 60s or 70s. And my mother was not afraid of neighborhoods like at all. And she said to me, "There is no way you're moving to Hoboken." And I'm like, "Why?" <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, "I you." And my mother would never say that about like almost any place.
0: Do you remember? Do you are you do you go far back enough to remember how the kids used to take down the stop signs? So you know. So, no, by
3: the time I got there, Hoboken was already, you know. Yeah. I'm a totally different place.
0: So I'm still traumatized about all of that. Like I stop on every corner still, even mm-hmm. though I see the goddamn there's not a stop sign because it's every other street. I stop on every corner because of the accidents that I witnessed. You know, head-on collisions on those corners.
3: Well, the that I mean, I think it what Abby was saying makes Uh, contributes to this is that people who have lived in in places where they've had to be hypervigilant as kids, whether that is abuse in a home or a neighborhood or they've lived through a war and some neighborhoods can feel like you're living through a war. um, I think that definitely, we know that not only changes how hypervigilant you are, but it actually changes your actually some of your genes and the expression mm. of your genes it sometimes has been shown to go even to the next generation mm. um, in terms of how your
0: genes express themselves
3: so it, it's like physiological so it affects
0: your dna
3: it does it affects how your it affects your physiology to the point where they're now understanding from the sort of epigenetics that it actually goes into the next generation trauma can be passed down
0: But also, the good news is that if you seek help and training and resolve a lot of it, you can reverse the physical. You can reverse it.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the the great news is that now we have so many more ways to help people reverse that. And that's why it's so important, like when they're doing um, teaching kids to meditate Mm -hmm. and do self-soothing, it's so important because – you are actually
1: helping them start to learn how to control their physiology. And so I just like thought of like a couple thoughts came to my mind. One of them is the idea of like I, I saw this an article that this school instead of detention they were giving kids meditation, um, and it made all the world the difference. And then I thought about my dog, and like when dogs misbehave or have destructive behaviors, it's because their energy isn't being used properly. And I feel like it's the same with humans. If we don't have the proper tools and and use our energies and our our bodies and our minds in the proper ways, these destructive behaviors will come in because we don't know what we're doing with ourselves. Absolutely.
2: And also, when you're under, when your brain and body think that you're under threat. The part of your, the part of your brain that handles logical thinking and rational decision making is your prefrontal cortex, which is just right behind your forehead. Mm-hmm. When you are experiencing anxiety, profound depression, or any other mental disorder that takes place in the limbic system, which is your emotional part of your brain, the connection between your prefrontal cortex and the limbic brain, it, it gets spotty, the Fi. Mm-hmm. So that's why so many of us have a hard time even thinking straight. When we're having anxiety or severe depression or any of those other things because there's actual disconnect going on in our brain and we're not able to sit down and and use our executive function we're not able to plan or think about consequences or or manage our impulses so what are
0: some of the things that we can do if, uh, if if this sounds familiar like this sounds very familiar to me it's actually it's evoking emotion
3: I think what Danny was saying actually makes so much sense because what, what actually Danny was saying was that schools, instead of punishing kids, which sends them further into, um, the, you know, when you're screaming at someone or they're in trouble, they go further into that sort of emotional survival, fight or flight mode. Mm -hmm. And so what we want to be doing with kids and with adults is teaching them, to get out of the fight and flight mode and into being able to use their frontal cortex
2: and things like meditation are wonderful for that. You know what the the cheapest and easiest way is to get your brain to go back to rest and digest and fight?
0: Masturbation.
2: Exercise. (laughs) That's the second best thing, Joey. (laughs) What's the first best? The first best thing is breathing breathing, especially having a lengthy exhale, no matter how long it is, if it's longer than your inhale, what you're signaling to your brain is I've got time to breathe. Mm
1: -hmm. And so your
2: brain says, oh, we've got time to breathe. Well, the tiger must not be still chasing us or else we'd be still panting. Ah, that makes so much sense. Take in a deep breath. It can be through your nose, your mouth, any way you want, just as long as your exhale is longer. That's a big...
3: Right. Mm. You want to exhale through your mouth because that, that inhale through your nose, exhale through your mouth will engage. That's shown to engage your fear center and calm it down. Okay. But Because it's telling your brain, Hey, look, you got plenty of time. You can breathe deeply now. Wow. But you also want to, I think as, as, as much as you can, I think that what Abby and I have both found is that when we're doing a lot of things to, in general, try to keep ourselves at a calm, stable place, and you you can't always be calm, but Mm -hmm. when we're doing a lot of, when we're putting a lot of gas in the tank, sort of calming gas in the tank, you know, for some people that's that's being outside. For me, that's walking in nature. I think for abs too. For some people that's art, um, crafting. There's so many ways. With your pets being with your pets, so many ways of doing that. And that kind of that helps you sort of be able to stay in a place where you you can
2: get less of that, like up and down of the emotions. Mm -hmm. The the problem with anxiety is, well, there's many problems with anxiety, (laughs) but my favorite problem with anxiety is this, that Ironically, if you try to stop it, if you put your energy into trying to stop the anxiety, you will actually make it worse. Mm -hmm. So Mags and I really, we try to teach people to kind of get the idea of eliminating the anxiety or getting rid of the anxiety out of their heads and instead think about riding a wave. Mm. sort of like just ride it. It will eventually release you for some people. It takes 30 seconds for some people. It might be an hour, however long it takes. It will eventually release you. So the idea is what can you do to sort of distract yourself and keep yourself in a decent place while you're riding the wave until it lets you go. And that changed my life with panic Mm -hmm. because, you know, I spent all my energy trying to get it to stop because I couldn't function. And then I wouldn't leave the house because I was so terrified of having anxiety attacks outside of my house, not being able to get back to my bed. Um, and it really disrupted my life. What changed for me was the idea that oh, I don't have to stop this. I don't have to make this attack stop. So surrender. I can exactly. I can just. I can ride this wave. And you can do it with breathing. You can do it with meditation. You can do it in nature. You can do it with animals, you can do it by saying really compassionate things to yourself out loud. So your brain hears it, Mm -hmm. you know, talking to yourself is just one of the best things you can do.
1: Oh, thank God. I do it all the time. That's, that's good to know. (laughs) And, And Maggie and I teach
2: mantras to everyone, you know, and pick, pick your own. Here's a bunch that we have that we like and say it aloud because studies have shown that what you hear coming out of your own mouth is the most powerful voice you can possibly experience.
0: What are some of those mantras? My
3: favorite is this too shall pass, reminding myself that I'm not
2: gonna be in this state forever. My favorite for me is breathe in, breathe out. So I just sort of follow that rhythm, breathe in, breathe out. And I'm only just telling myself what to do. And before long it's the breathing slows, the heart slows
0: my favorite is "fuck them before they fuck you."
2: <laughs> that is number three on our list, Joey. <laughs> on our website, you will find that under our mantras. <laughs> no, but we do. We have a whole bunch of them. We like baby, yeah. small steps every day. Yeah. Um Ride the wave. Really, I'm I mean, okay.
1: Yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. Yes, but, I'm okay.
2: Is there something that you say to yourself when you're feeling? on edge is there something you can say to yourself that you like that would be your mantra it doesn't have yeah. to close
1: yeah i'm curious about your both of your like experiences growing up M- my dad thinks and a lot of people think and i think too it's like you know that unresolved childhood traumas and i also think it's fascinating that people you know have great childhoods and they still have these issues so it it's it can it can happen to anyone, whether you had a great childhood or not. So I'm curious about what your experiences were. I had a wonderful childhood, and I have struggled with anxiety and depression
2: and obsessive compulsive disorder my entire life. So I don't, you know, from in my case, it definitely wasn't family trauma. Mm-hmm. In my case. lots of other stuff, but not not that. I, yeah, there's a million causes.
0: When you, say, you mean uh, uh, other other traumas that that, you, that occurred to you that had nothing to do with family? Is that what you mean?
2: Yeah, for me trauma has not been the cause of my anxiety. For me my I believe and it's of course picking out a cause for anxiety is sort of like trying to figure out which mm-hmm. ant bit you from your anthill. I mean, there's so many causes and they interact with each other, right? Your your environment interacts with your body chemistry which interacts with your past and your family relationships etc. But for me, I think I have um I've always had a very bad thyroid a lot of women don't know this, but get your thyroid check, ladies, because that's the cause of a lot of anxiety, particularly as you get into middle age. Um, so and I feel like I've had hormonal issues, struggle with that. I know Maggie struggled with hormonal issues as well. Um, you know, any number of things. I mean, Maggie will talk about the fact that she had an ill father during her childhood as being a traumatic experience. So she did have that mm-hmm. affect her mental health, you know, it, but it's a combination of a lot of things.
3: I think mm. I also came from, a, I came, there was anxiety in the air in my house <laughs> is mm. the best way to say it. Um, you know, partly just cause my parents, just partly of who, my parents were in terms of their life experiences and they were, they were incredibly loving parents, but both had been through their own traumas, um, and own very, very early losses. And so when my dad became sick, when I was five, that was an incredible trauma for my, both my parents for so many different reasons. And he was very, very ill for a very long time. And so, There was there was always that um, feeling that some kids of alcoholics have told me this feeling where you're you sort of don't know what's coming next, Mm. but it wasn't because of alcohol or drugs. It was really because of an illness that
2: was very, very severe and changeable. But but if you think about it, Mags, so, you know, protracted illness, it puts you in prolonged flight or flight
3: yes we we were in prolonged and and i think like that abby came from a really wonderful family but there were a lot of expectations on you too i guess there were yes, and they yes, were there. very high you know
2: high. Yeah, i mean i had jewish parents who you know wanted me to be a dentist my father was a dentist my because mother was her, her father was a dentist but
3: but you had you had wonderful parents who had extremely
0: high expectations, probably higher than because they, that was put on them uh, for their parents, um, right? It's 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 generational. I I you know I Carl Reiner's book uh, Enter Laughing was you know, it was all about how he wanted to be you know writer actor, but his family was like no way you're going to be a dentist because that was the that was the most accessible thing for a young kid growing up in the, you know, the, in the thirties and forties.
3: Well, there, uh, was a, there was a history, you know, For my parents are old, were much older than Abby's parents. And Abby's parents are like wonderful, really, um, a different generation and, and much more secure, I think in a lot of ways. But I think my parents definitely, my parents would be in their nineties now. They definitely grew up, you know, watching my dad fought at the end of World War II um, or was in the, in the Navy at the end of world war II. Um, so they definitely experienced that trauma of mm-hmm. watching what happened and living at a certain time where there are places, they couldn't go things they couldn't do. Um, whereas, and I definitely think that was, that also contributed to their sense of whether they were safe in the world, you know, and, and so many different communities, you know, can, can understand that, you know, are we, are we safe in this world? You know, will our kids be safe in this world?
2: Well, that's what the George, the George Floyd, we were talking about really brings that up for me is that, you know, uh, this is, this is about the safety of an entire community of people. Yeah. The stakes are that high, I think. Right. And, and Mm
3: -hmm. what happens is a generational or many generational trauma and that's, that's the stuff that they're really understanding now is really passed down. Mm-hmm. Um, this woman, Rachel Yehuda has done a lot of work with children of Holocaust survivors um, and how their physiology was changed. So their stress tolerance has changed. But we, we've also seen that, you know, many generations of black people in this country um, who've been traumatized for many generations, it's four hundred and one years. Change is a stress response physiologically,
0: and also there was that Kaiser Permanente study, that seventeen-year ACE study. You, 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 ladies, familiar with that? Mm-hmm. You know that that they they figured out that if you said yes to three or four, eight, no three Aces, you had a six hundred percent greater chance of getting depression later in life. Uh, you know two. You had a 12% chance of upper respiratory, especially in women who didn't feel entitled to, to show their feelings, they kept everything in, and and how ultimately in, in seeking treatment and resolve, you could reverse those diseases, not just emotional disease, but physical disease.
3: Right. Well, because there's not really a difference between emotional disease and physical disease. I mean, right. we, we talk about them as if they're separate, but... They're really not because, mm-hmm. you know, our hormones, you know, when we're stressed, for example, the cortisol, um, the adrenaline, We our hormones, you know, surge through our body. They're not mm-hmm. like there's not a there's not really a difference between the two um, right. as we talk about it, that.
1: It kind of makes sense. Like I was like, it's an emotional response, but you're having an emotion because of your brain and your brain is in your body and it affects other things. It's like, of course, it affects your body. When you guys were talking like the stomach issues, you know, when I did theater in college before every performance, my stomach would turn and I had to go to the bathroom. You know, I have those like anxiety, like, you know, sorry, everyone, anxiety poops that is just like your stomach just like turns it, it's all but I'm feeling a physical response because of my emotional state. Of course, they go hand in hand. I don't know why it's just like right now. I'm just like, whoa. of course they do. Like, I don't know why it's such an epiphany. Danny, you know, the stomach is really our second brain. Right. The gut. And the vagus nerve
2: connects your penthouse brain with your stomach brain and really The research that's been done in this area is so fascinating. I've read so much about it. They are now able to see that Parkinson's begins in the gut. A neurological disease that we associate with shaking and and, and brain Mm -hmm. issues, they are now able to find stuff in the gut 20 years before you ever see a tremor. Mm. Because what's, what, what they're finding out is the connection between both of your brains, right? Your central nervous system up here and your enteric and, and nervous system in your gut, that they're they're so deeply connected. And so what Maggie says is true. The mind-body connection, you know, the folks in the East got that part right.
1: Right. Well, that's what yoga is all about. If your mind is right, your body is right. That is literally the whole point of yoga and breathing. Breathing is the thing that helps it.
3: Yes. And and the majority of your serotonin is in your stomach. Ninety-nine you know, what, is, what, wow. are, what are our SSRIs trying to, like Zoloft and Prozac, and all, they're, you know, they're trying to, they're targeting serotonin. while well, the
0: majority of it is in your stomach. So the idea of seeing a doctor for these and then him prescribing, literally prescribing three hours of yoga a week, meditation not you know th- that's the kind of doctor i want to go see you know uh, 20 minute walks every day well
1: that's like ayurveda right ayurveda and and you know gut doctors i feel like they and maggie and i've
2: done a lot of yeah. research about different eastern modalities like tai chi and qigong there's all kinds of practices acupuncture mm. there's so yeah. much you can do that, um, that really does rely on the notion that your body is completely connected with your mind, that it's all one. Mm-hmm. <sighs> and
3: that's, that is why we want to teach meditation to kids, you know, to, ha- but I do want to say that when people, you know, I know for me, um, and, and, and the other anxiety sisters, when people are in a place where the anxiety or the depression is such that, they're really not able to live their lives, that they're really at that place that is, you know, for me, it was being at a place where I was agoraphobic, where it was hard for me to leave my home. Medication was very important in my treatment. And um, because it allowed me, I don't think I could have done a lot of the kinds of therapy I had to do to get out of that if I didn't have medication to allow me to leave my house, I couldn't right. do 20
0: minute walks.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I couldn't go to a yoga class. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. Me, I, I have to say also that in my case, that medication was a bridge to my.
1: Yes. Um, Same for me.
0: Yeah. It, 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 you know, it, it still is. And, yeah, uh, we, us we have, too.
2: and we're, we're very clear with our community. We have about, almost 200,000 members of our online community. And we, we really are clear that we are not pro big pharma. We are pro, we are anti-anxiety or anti-depression. Mm. And there should be no shame or stigma around taking medication to help you with that. If you need right. it, right. same way that you would take insulin if you were a type two diabetic who needed insulin. Right. There should not be shame there. No, right. absolutely so, not. Now, Mags and I have mean, always been extremely open about our taking medication because right. you don't want anyone to feel like there's something wrong with that.
3: Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's hard because right now you'll see a lot of programs out there, you know, or books out there on anxiety that says, you know, I can get you better without med- medication. And and maybe and maybe, maybe there are many right. people who can get better without medication. But when you're at the point where it's um, very, very severe, I think it's a very hard thing to do. We both think it's a very hard thing to do, and we're not sure. In most cases, that it's a necessary thing to do,
2: mm-hmm. you know, especially when you're dealing with something like a phobia, you know, the, uh, where, where it really or, or, or severe, panic, severe where panic you really cannot function at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you're. Yes. We are OCD. Yeah, exactly. If you, are, if you are, you know, at that explain that to us. Excuse so OCD stands for obsessive compulsive disorder. It's a type of anxiety where, which is defined by, um, you have these, um, obsessions, obsessional thinking, and in order to soothe yourself from the distress that that obsessional thinking causes, you have a ritual. So the ones they use in the movies all the time are someone who's washing his or her hands constantly, you know, to sort of alleviate the germ fear or whatever. Monk
1: the show monk Dad, that we love oh, so okay, much. Okay. Okay. Exactly.
2: Now for me, okay. My obsessive compulsive disorder revolves around health issues. Okay. So the way I would present with my obsession, my, my obsession would be that I was afraid I was going to have a heart attack. Mm-hmm. I was terrified that I was going to have a heart attack. This is when I was 20 years old, terrified of that. So I would take my pulse every few minutes. I would stop and take my pulse, make sure it's still going and it's the right pace. And there's nothing weird happening. And as the OCD got worse for me, I couldn't stop taking my pulse. It got to the point where I wanted to be hooked up to my computer so I could see the biofeedback and take my pulse 24 seven.
1: Wow. And then I,
2: then I couldn't function as an adult. (laughs) Then I couldn't Mm -hmm. do the things I needed to do. And I, and I always needed to be five minutes from the hospital in case I would have this heart attack. Wow. And I had gone to cardiologists and my heart was just fine, but that was how the OCD presented for me. So I had a combination of a OCD and also something called illness, anxiety disorder or what they used to call hypochondria.
3: OCD can also look a little bit different. And I, I just want to bring it up because, um, you know, I, there are people who I haven't really understood that they had OCD because there's a different presentation to it. And so in kids, it could look like someone who needs a ton of reassurance. Mm. Are you sure? you're going out. Are you going to be okay? You know, mom's going out from the night. Are you going to be okay? You sure you're going to be okay? You're going to be okay. Like they, they need all this. They need constant reassurance or they start to think about something and they ruminate on, it they literally cannot interrupt those thoughts. And so they can spend hours and hours thinking about something and not being able to interrupt those thoughts. That is That's also a type of OCD, and um,
2: it's it's a it's a disease of doubt. Yes. What you do is you sit there and you're doubting what Mm. you what you know to be true. I mean, you know, I also have some OCD around germs, and all the time I'm saying to myself, "I know that I am not going to die if I touch that. I know that, but that that little seed of doubt will go in your head,
3: Mm -hmm. right? But someone might have OCD; they may think that they're going to hurt someone, someone who's not violent. Um, This may be like um, a new mother, say, but it could be, it doesn't have to be a new mother, but this is one example that often doesn't get diagnosed. A new mother is really fearful that she's going to hurt her baby and is obsessed with it. And, And people have even gone to therapists who didn't know about this type of OCD and they don't know if that person's a danger. So it's very
2: scary for people to talk about. But mm-hmm. you can have tab- you could have taboo thinking. Some yes get stuck on some, you know, very what they they consider perverse sexual thoughts or gory, violent thoughts. And these but are not these aren't people who are going to do it. These are people who are afraid that they
3: will do it.
0: That sounds familiar. Mm. I, I I can relate to that. Also, yeah. like my uh, recalling memories of my mother who was not doubtful that something might happen she was absolutely convinced uh, that something was going to happen to to her, her kids and didn't want you know fearful of me going away as a teenager like you know going down the jersey shore make sure you call me as soon as you get there and then screaming at me why didn't you call me where have you been what happened um
3: well she might have also yeah she might have also been a very she it sounds like your mother was very anxious and it also mm-hmm. and it often came out in anger for her yeah because that's another way anxiety definitely comes out for a lot of people is that they get very irritable and angry and it every time you talk about your mother that's the sense i get from her is that mm-hmm. she was very irritable and angry
2: um which is also <laughs> <often, laughs> Oh, sorry. Go, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Abs. No, I just wanted to mention really quickly that, you know, um, a, a cousin of OCD, it, it, well, a, a cousin of OCD behavior is catastrophizing, which Maggie and I are the uh, world mm-hmm. champions right now where they, we have the title. Mm -hmm. and basically catastrophizing is coming up with the worst possible thing that can ever happen to you in any situation. It's, you know, there, you're making mountains out of molehills and a lot of parents catastrophize within a lot of parents with anxiety catastrophize. Oh my goodness my child has a fever, what if he gets really sick? Or, oh my goodness, my son Joey's driving down the parkway, what if he gets in an accident and I don't hear from him? I mean- I do that. Those catastrophes, and it's very human to catastrophize. We all well, do it to a certain extent, yeah. but yeah. people with anxiety, tend, that tends to be uh, a frequent activity.
3: Yeah, all of these are very sort of basic human emotions and when it becomes an anxiety disorder is when it becomes very disruptive in your life. Right, so it's like every every parent worries. You wouldn't be a parent if you didn't worry. But is it to the point where it's disrupting your life or your child's life? We
0: all have pieces individually of uh, you know OCD. Uh, it's just a matter of when when your life becomes unmanageable as a result of it. You know, so you check the lights, but the, if you can't leave the house because you know that they, you left the light on. You know, that's that's a problem.
3: Yeah. I mean, I've I've spoken to people who have spent, you know, are thinking about things like how they acted in the past or past breakups. And okay, so we all do that. But I've spoken to people who who started going down that rabbit hole and six hours later they emerge. Mm. and didn't even know that they had been thinking about that for six hours. Now that's, that's where it's a problem, you know, cause they're sitting at work and
2: they haven't done anything for six hours. I mean, I always tell people anxious is human,
1: but it shouldn't run your life. That's like it's just so many things just like, yes, yes, yes. Like the taboo thinking. I've always thought, why am I thinking that? That's just like, oh, my God, something's wrong with me. No, it's that's the anxiety. And like, it's it's just like things are like clicking. Ninety four percent of people
3: have those kind of very intrusive thoughts, whatever. It's part of
2: being human. yeah.
3: It isn't so that is not a problem, and the content of the thought matters not very much at all. Yeah, yeah. and
1: Maggie
2: and I love to tell people, yeah. don't believe everything you think.
1: Yeah, yeah. I love that. Don't believe everything you think. That's amazing. Thoughts are just thoughts. Well, yeah. You know,
0: one one of the things that I I remember uh, hearing was what what you know what you think other people think of you is none of your business. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sitting here fantasizing. First of all, I come to the conclusion that I'm an anxiety sister. And, uh, and, and secondly,
2: 30% of our community are men. No kidding. Well, me too. Uh, (laughs) But the other thing is, it's
0: like uh, visualizing this kind of preschool setup where they're teaching these two-year-olds all of this stuff. Yes. You know, to introduce you to you to your feelings and, you know, to keep an eye, if you feel this way, let's talk about it. And it's normal. It's normal. They're trying to do that in Hoboken, put in a real
3: emotional curriculum. And awesome. you're doing that now. Yeah. Preschool and um, and yes, it's like it is all about sort of teaching, giving the vocabulary to very young kids and then giving them tools yeah. to manage yeah. emotions. Because like Abby said, not everyone, a lot of people with
2: anxiety and depression didn't have trauma, but they may not have had the tools right, or the vocabulary. And and they don't. And the the thing is, is that the conversation now is so much better than it was when Maggie and I were kids, like 35 years ago when we were in college. You know, nobody talked about anxiety or depression. And now it's like 10 years ago, I think. Honey, I think think you're missing a few. (laughs) But, But no, but I mean, now we have organizations like active minds which is
0: yeah wonderful
2: okay and they and their mission is to get out there and help people on the college campuses and in the work world and then and in the high schools to to give them the the understanding that you know your mental health is as important as your physical health let's not wait uh-huh. until something goes wrong to get it checked out and so it's it's very hopeful but that's what mags and i our whole goal for the anxiety sisters is to keep changing that conversation so that Eventually, all educators of preschoolers are bringing some meditation and deep breathing and blowing bubbles into the daily. Joey,
3: when, um, when my son was going to his, I think, his second year of preschool, first day he ran up to his friend and he said, Are you having anticipatory anxiety? Because
2: I am. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, occupational hazard of being the son of an anxiety sister
3: yeah yeah that's amazing that's fantastic
2: fantastic.
3: no it doesn't mean that you know even with that vocabulary and those tools it doesn't mean that someone doesn't really really struggle with with issues you know because part of it we know is genetic and.
2: But I try it's to so imagine much. what would have been different for me. You know, my parents knew that my right. stomach issues, if they, they, they didn't know this, it just wasn't talked about. But if my right. parents had sat down with me or my mother had said to me, you know, sometimes we get a nervous tummy when we're feeling worried about something. I mean, that just was not ever.
0: Or the doctor, the doctor definitely that you helped,
2: they were taking you to,
0: yes. You know, even there, I mean, certainly with, with me, uh, but I'm ancient, you know, uh, when I was five years old, that was that was uh, 64 years ago. <laughs> you know, um,
2: you don't look at kid.
0: <laughs> thanks. I got to I got a filter on this camera.
3: You know, I think that even even um, teaching all this to kids, it's it's not like Abby and I sort of always say that we're not going to eliminate Depression and, and anxiety. It's not going away. But what we are going to teach people, hopefully, is that they don't have to suffer alone yeah. and that they can get help. It's not something that can be eliminated in any way. But there's yeah. so yeah.
2: much help that we can get people. But what can be eliminated that,
0: is the shame
2: that yeah. Blame. Yeah. the blame and the shame uh, has got to go. And
0: well, the, but the, the the first thing you can do with that is by rephrasing it so that you don't call it a disorder. Yeah. You know, it's not, It's you know, it's like, that's on you. If you have a disorder, it means you're not normal. You're Abby normal. Remember Mel Brooks movie, The Brain? What what was the name on that brain? Abby something. Abby normal,
2: I think. It was my nickname in high school they used to call me Abby normal. No way, really? Yeah. Did they? I didn't know that. Visionaries, those kids are. And also Howdy Doody. Howdy Doody. Why? How I'm did right you? Red hair and the freckles, and they used to try to count my freckles. That was traumatic.
0: Well, I used to count Daniela's freckles too.
2: Did okay. you use Did you use one of those laundry markers that you can't get off? No.
1: No. His His counting of my freckles was not traumatic. It was actually very sweet. He would He would just be like one, two, three, four, five, and then he'd be like a thousand. <laughs> it's actually one of my favorite memories. Is yeah, that it, you would it was my to count my, freckles. my
0: computer chip. It was like a thousand.
1: It's that just, was so
2: sweet. Maggie and, I, <laughs> Maggie and I were so excited to find the two of you because the idea that a father and daughter could share I know this, this discussion, not only with themselves, but then with the world, open themselves up and be vulnerable and, you know, to let people know that whether you're a man or a woman or a, a younger person or an older person or a middle-aged person, whatever you are, whatever race you are it doesn't matter. We all share this. We all yeah. share the experience of anxiety and depression on some level. Cause it's part mm-hmm. of being human. It's a question of, you know, does it, does it start to run your world? Yeah. Mm. yeah. I, always say, I always say to my anxiety, if when I wake up and I have it, I say, fine, you're here, but you're not driving.
1: Yeah. I mean, I definitely have anxiety. Sometimes I think I was misdiagnosed like that. The depression is just like, it's just anxiety. And the way it presents itself, someone might think it's depression. But, and I remember, and I've been want, thinking about getting back on medication too, because I remember so clearly when I went to college and I, you know, couldn't stop crying for three days and I had to, like, I had to leave because every time I left that campus, I immediately felt better. And I think I mentioned this in, when we guys were talking to you, like, even driving by that campus, still my stomach turns. Yeah. And that medication, it just, it helped me start and I, I've noticed I'm I'm still struggling with starting. I know every single thing I have to do. I know every tool. It's all the toolbox is sitting on the floor, but I can't open it. Yes. So I've thought about like, well, maybe I need medication again. And sometimes medication scares me because, you know, there can be side effects, And so, you know, maybe there's like an herbal supplement or maybe I just need to go to the gut doctor and they need to tell me what food I have to eat, you know, um, or maybe I do just need medicine again. But it's the starting for me is harder, just opening the toolbox and then, you know, figuring it out. We also
3: don't really... Um, think that there's so much of a difference between anxiety and depression. Often, yeah, there might not. Be. In Europe, there's um, I think there's there's a diagnosis now of a depression anxiety and anxiety and depression. Depression diagnosis there's one diagnosis. It's yeah. sort of a one. They have a one diagnosis that for many different reasons they decided not to um, adopt here. There are many different reasons. Um, so people get diagnosed sometimes with depression and anxiety, but really. The two, if you, they go together. In fact, like if you've had a major depression, you're very, very likely to experience anxiety.
0: I hear the song, Anxiety, Depression. Anxiety, <laughs> Depression goes together like a horse and carriage.
2: Exactly. I like it. New theme song for No Kidding Me Too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no but it's true they are kissing cousins and i i've experienced real clinical depression i had severe postpartum depression after the birth of my son uh so i mean maggie and i always tell people we're really the anxiety and depression sisters but it's not as catchy right
1: right (laughs) (laughs) um okay i have i have one more question actually because my dad says all the time that his you know, he wants people to listen to this podcast and people who might not know that they have anxiety or depression or something or might not know that the person that they love is dealing with this. So, you know, to anyone listening, if if anything seems relatable, what do you, Abby and Maggie, like what would you suggest their like first step of the journey would be?
2: I mean, I would say I would say first first step is to start with the acceptance piece. In other words, to, to start right away with the, I'm not going to fight this. This is not going to be a fight or a battle. I'm not going to try to stop this. In other words, you know, kind of getting that riding the wave thought going on. Like I'm going to, I'm going to pursue treatment for this. There's so many different avenues, but I'm not going to go in there thinking I need to stop this in its tracks and get rid of it. Because I think that it took me 20 years to figure that out. But once I did, it was a game changer.
0: Yeah, in my case, it was like and to surrender to it and not be ashamed of it. That's
3: what you I was going to say. To know that you know it, it's it's hit all of us. It's hit Joey. It's hit Danielle. It's hit Abby. It's hit Maggie. Like it's hit you know men and women and people from all different areas, all different walks of life and ethnicities. And so it's the shame piece that I think. um because because you can live a, a better life and you can make life better
0: for the people around you too. In short, there is crying in baseball.
2: Yes, there is yeah. crying in baseball. One hundred percent. There's crying in everything, and that's mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's also laughing in everything, and anger mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. sadness and grief, and all the all the space that we need to hold for human emotions. We that's the conversation is to but open I, it I up. Love- I love this podcast, you know, the two
0: of
3: you with your podcast in part, because one of the things that I keep hearing from both of you is that, you know, when Joey went into treatment, it changed the way he parented and the way he had a relationship with his wife and the way he was, is in the world, you know, so that what is going on with us definitely impacts not just us, but the relationships
1: that we have around us. 100%. Yeah, I mean we we joke all the time if if he never got that treatment, if he didn't see that help, he, him and my mom wouldn't be together anymore. You know, my life would be my relationship would with him would be so different. So it's like incredible that he was able to accept it and and find the tools and do the hard work to get to where he is. Yes.
0: Well, it's it's work keep it's you know it's not stopped no to keep working yeah Yeah. to continue
2: and And, you know we we tell people all the time even for us veteran anxiety sisters there are still days where one of us will call the other one and say are you sure this is anxiety you know i mean it's just that that's being human Mm -hmm. and and our brand of happiness is anxious happiness you know, you can be very happy and live a very productive life and feel very fulfilled, and still have anxiety or depression.
0: Yeah. But, you know, also it's it, it can be your main source of creativity. You know, it's your it's your friend. It's you you, you, you channel it as a, as an energy.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I often my experience anecdotally has been that creative types have more anxiety. That's been my experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And why I like what my dad says about that is because we're more empathetic. And so we are more sensitive and we see more things. And so we can relate to more things. And we tell these stories because we see it and we feel it. and We want other people to see and understand what we're feeling. And that's the way we do it by painting a painting or making a movie. It's like, we just want you to understand what we see and feel. So we do it this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that the people who explore the human condition are the ones
2: so deeply affected by it.
0: Wow. Yep. That's, that sounds familiar.
1: Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for being here. So as always, I feel much better after speaking and I just, I love them. Like I loved when we did their podcast and I love having them on here i want to have them again and again like they're just so smart. They're so smart and the way they talk about it is so approachable and just i loved
0: how they've been able to use their you know the knowledge from their own disease and to use it as a helping tool for people to get you know to come face to face with their own disease and to work it out yeah
1: it's they're they're really incredible and um, I just, the thing about riding the wave really resonated with me. And yeah, this is the
0: future of healing. This is the yeah. future of healing and, in, and, in, in Western culture for sure. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Um, so we got, we hope you guys, uh, enjoyed our conversation with them and check out their podcast and their website, uh, the website, uh, the, the anxiety sisters.com. Correct. I believe so. Yes. And it'll be in our show notes. Um, all their information is in our show notes, so go go listen to them. And um, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review. It helps us get further up on the podcast list so more people can listen and more people can start having those conversations. Up on the pod chain. Up on the pod chain is where we want to be. I love you, Daddy.
0: I love you, Danny.